I assume uh, drumming culture isn't still happening no, now. No, no, no. And I think that um, at Bowmore we were the, the first company actually to stop it in the uh, mid-80s. And um, uh, while we got a lot of criticism for it, nevertheless, it wasn't too long before the families were thanking us yeah, for can what we did. Well, because basically what was happening was that um, on a Friday night they would be getting a dram from the brewer and um, uh, get their wages at the same time and down to the pub and um, before you knew what happened, they'd split the wage packet and um, unless the wife was down there pretty PDQ, um, <laughs> the whole wage packet was drunk. Welcome back to the Whiskey Legends podcast, where I speak to my granddad Tim Morrison about how the industry has developed over the last hundred years. In this episode, we hear about his time on the production line, his favourite and least favourite jobs, the lack of health and safety, and some of the perks of working in whiskey in the 60s. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like featured in future series, please leave them in the ratings or our YouTube and social channels, which you can find in the description. Okay, so last episode, we heard the background, what the industry was like, sort of pre you coming into it, um, how your father started to grow the business. Um, what did the industry look like when you came into it and you were sort of, how old would you have been then? I would be um, <clears throat> 19. 19 years old. Yeah. And, and yeah, 19. And um, what did the industry look like? Well, the industry was very active both in Glasgow and in Edinburgh and in London. And, you know, quite a number of brokers down in London. Um, and um, But those were the three centres of the whisky industry, um, those three, three cities. Yeah, and similar sort of brands at this point to the ones you mentioned yeah, last time. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. I mean, obviously, you came in at, at 18... Did you always, I mean, we sort of established you didn't have an infatuation from childhood or anything like that, but did you kind of know or always know you wanted to join the industry? Um, well, <clears throat> I left school when 18 and um, uh, <clears throat> I was then faced with what is what are we going to do? And um, uh, <clears throat> my father didn't put any pressure on me. But he said, if you're interested, I'll speak to somebody and um, you can get a training with one of the companies. And so he spoke to uh, John McPhail of Arthur Bell. And as a consequence of that, it was arranged that I would go and work, do my training with them for eight months. Um, so you didn't have any other, you know... You wanted to be a doctor or a absolutely none a car so. salesman, a, a sportsman. <laughs> no, no, I think I'd have fallen my face in in all other aspects. And why was that? Um, while interested in cars, I didn't think that was something I wanted to get involved. In fact, I really didn't have a clue yeah. as to what I wanted to do. And yeah. this, if you like, was an easy option. So off I went up to Bucky and um, it was snowing and I was cold, but was warmly welcomed by the the staff and the manager at Inchgar Distillery. 
And they were part of Bells. Arthur Bells, yeah. Inchgar whiskey went into the Bells blend, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was your what was your first role when you were there? Um, <clears throat> and, uh, as a, a maltster, um, followed then going on to the um, to the mashing um, and um, finally into the uh, the still house. Did you have a, a favourite job on the production line? Did I have a favourite job? I would say that uh, being involved in the malting side um, of, of the business was something that interested me because I just felt that we were dealing with a a living object. It was interesting to see a floor being laid, for instance, on the Monday and it coming to fruition, so to speak, going to the kiln yeah. on a Friday. Yeah, you were in touch uh, with your uh, yes, I mean, natural uh, side. And that's right. And and it was it was physically quite hard because uh, you were shoveling malt to aerate it uh, on the malting floors. And that actually from my point of view was was quite good because it kept you fit and yeah. uh, good and mindfulness then, uh, good mindfulness and uh, but the other thing was it would um, go from the the upside uh, of turning the floors to the downside of clearing the kilns why was the kiln so bad because it was a concentrated heat chamber <laughs> and uh, yeah, that doesn't so, sound ideal. No, it wasn't, and um, so consequently, the heat in there would be, I suppose, up there in the forties, fifties, sixties, and of course you're you're working, and you're stripping this barley, and it's dust, and um, gets in your face and your eyes, and <clears throat> so this was the production line, basically. Yeah. yeah. And did your dad say, look, I recommend you do this and then and put you on a certain path? Or did no, you kind what of... basically he said, look, here is something you might consider. I can organise a training programme for you. Uh, do it, complete it. And then when you're finished, see where you want to go. So was yeah. there was there set jobs on the production line or did yeah. you kind of rotate? Or... Oh, we rotated round. Except I rotated more than most. Because uh, <laughs> you were I'd, the young one. Yeah, yeah. We used to clean the washbacks, which um, today would never be allowed because basically what happens is you go into the washbacks and, um, and you have to be very, very careful that there's no carbon dioxide um, still lingering <laughs> in the, uh, the washbacks. Otherwise... That's the end of you. Yeah, so health and safety wasn't oh, uh, a yeah, priority knew, for never you. Never knew anything about health and safety. <laughs> and how did you test whether there was carbon dioxide? People just started passing out? Or? Well, hopefully that somebody who was doing the hosing um, and uh, cleaning it before we went in to, to sweep it, um, because you were given great big long brushes, and, um, and then you swept these washbacks. And uh, that was quite a, uh, a job. And then they would um, put um, um, sodium as a cleanser. Um, Lots of the... nice chemicals then. Oh, great. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And you must have been in serious shape afterwards. I, well, indeed, because at the same time I had the opportunity of 
playing rugby. Okay. Uh, and then in the, in the summer playing cricket. Must have been knackered. Finish your shift, uh, malting and cleaning um, washbacks, and then rough to rugby. Uh, <clears throat> well, fortunately, we were. Um, you worked every uh, one weekend out of three. Okay. And what were the hours like? Were you? Um, you would start at seven and finish at six. Seven in the morning, six in the evening. Yeah. And there were night shifts as well? Or? Indeed there was, which was awful. Yeah. And how many people were sort working. of working on the production line at any one time? About 20, 23, 24. Yeah. And is yeah. that similar to now? Uh, oh, no. Gosh, no. There's there's quarter of that number. Yeah. Because we used to have people in the malt barns. We'd have in the, um, the mash tun area, um, mashing and then fermentation and then distillation but then of course you had a group working in the warehouses as well yeah um uh, so yeah. you had quite a, a big workforce in those yeah. days and were you were you quite social with them did people go Very. out after after work or were you not just really. you not really got on you well just during work yeah and then yeah. what people went back to their their families their families because basically in those days everybody worked in the distillery stayed in distillery houses right okay and um uh but i the distillery managers or rather the the manager of the bell's distilleries up there his son um was a keen cricketer and a keen rugby player so so you got on well with him yeah 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 because i can't even go into the office in in london without being dragged to some after work drinks and really? that writes you off the next day but I guess that's a bit harder if you have to climb into a, a kiln Oof. the day after did they yeah. at least get a little uh, whiskey on the way out they, they nick well of course in those days they had the dramming um, <clears throat> and that meant that each um, shift that came off uh, were offered um, a dram of new spirit or maybe slightly older spirit um, and that every was, day, yeah, that was prevalent in the industry. Yeah, and how big were these drams? Oh gosh, um, probably a decent glass. <laughs> um, I was fortunate that I didn't like the stuff, so um, I was fairly fortunate because I would give mine to somebody else to remember the older Cooperage boys or <laughs> something like that. Quite popular then. Well, I don't know about that, but um, it was certainly an, an, an enjoyable environment. Yeah, uh, I assume uh, dramming culture isn't still happening no, now. No, no, no. And I think that um, at Beaumont, we were the, the first company actually to stop it um, in the uh, mid-80s. And um, uh, while we got a lot of criticism for it, Nevertheless, it wasn't too long before the families were thanking us yeah, for can what we did. Yeah. Why? Because? Well, because basically what was happening was that um, on a Friday night, they would be getting a dram from the brewer and, um, and then um, uh, get their wages at the same time and down to the pub. And um, before you knew what happened, they'd split the wage packet. And um, unless the wife was down there pretty PDQ, um, <laughs> the whole wage packet was drunk. I have to admit, <clears throat> I'm bad for that when I get paid on a Friday. Luckily, I don't have a wife, though. So. 
It's okay. Um, okay, so you had about eight eight months then on the production eight, line? Eight months on with Arthur Bell. Yeah, and then um, where were you next? Then I went to Leith uh, to their blending and bottling warehouses, uh, which were situated in the central centre of Leith. And that was Bell's, Bell's uh, warehouses? Well, yeah. yeah. And what were your roles there then? Um, I was involved in the administration, but at the same time, I had to go on the bottling lines and I had to shovel casks um, and I had to um, fill up the the lines with either labels or cartons or bottles, depending what was. So um, it was pretty thorough, the the jobs that I yeah. were, were, were given. And you mentioned there's a lot, about a quarter of the the staff now on the production line. Is Absolutely. it similar with the, the warehouse Absolutely. and bottling as sure. well? Sure. Was there a lot of it done by hand then? Or? Oh, most of it was done by... Not most of it. The big brands ha- had a, um, were fairly automated. Mm-hmm. But um, the small, smaller brands, it was, you know, shoving it uh, underneath the thing and pushing it along next one, shoving it along and yeah. what have you. And what about the labels and stuff, putting them on um, by hand? And yeah, absolutely. Crikey, that would have yeah. taken a while. Oh, not only... Um, taken a while but quality control yeah was a problem oh yeah i can imagine were there ever any big sort of blunders that you saw yeah i mean um uh cases going out without labels on them (laughs) um and uh, you know which was almost common Mm. Uh, and then you see what also happened was if you were doing um a liquid glue um you had to let the bottles rest um, for the glue to dry, because then what would happen? Other what would happen? Some guy along at the, the end of them with the cases there would pick the bottle up and stick it into the dividers. Mm. The label is still wet, and it would just collapse on itself. Mm. So you, the poor distributor or importer, would get this or these cases of whiskey that were. The label was just it was non-existent. quality control was yeah non-existent. quality control and yeah. I guess there was more room for other mistakes. Did you ever have any big uh, errors that cost the company or anything like that? No, um, you would see the odd um, tractor take take the wrong road and and tip up a carton of bottles or <laughs> something like that, which didn't go down too well. Yeah, so they weren't getting their pay that that month. <laughs> Well, I don't know how they punish them, but <laughs> maybe no dram at the end of the day for a while. Well, I think that I. Funny enough, actually, I think in the bottling halls, I don't think they got dramming. I suppose they must have. Probably once a week, the end of the the end the end of the week. They or they slip the slip the odd one in their in their bag. Yeah. Before putting it. Well, in the yeah. Case. I mean, this security was. Um, uh, could be pretty lax. Yeah. Um, and security was basically uh, customs and excise rather than actually companies mm-hmm. having their own uh, security. Yeah. And so, did, I mean, in the was it similar sort of people at the at the warehouse? There wasn't many your age in terms of socialising and things no. like that? No. Um, unlike up in the distilleries, because... 
there were quite a number of people like me who were doing training programs um, in other companies. Um, so I met a lot. You met all those guys. Yeah. Are you still friendly with them now? Well, if they're alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing was that uh, the customers in Excise had a system whereby their young officers um, who had just come out of university, they were sent up to Speyside or to distilleries. And custom and excise is? Uh, well, that's the the body that levies the tax on... So the government, basically. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and these guys were of a similar background to us. And um, uh, some played cricket, some played rugby, some socialised. And, um, and it was quite sociable up that part of the, the world in those days. Yeah. You know, up in Elgin and um, Forest and um, Aberdeen to an extent. and But um, Grantown. No, it, I met a lot of people at that time and um, it was... Uh, it was... It was fun. But at the same time, fairly, very hard work. Yeah. But worth it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so obviously you, you joined uh, SPM at some point, but there was, there was another role before you joined your father's company? Well, I went to work for the North British Distillery, yeah. situated beside Murrayfield. It's quite a nice place for a place to be situated. Well, indeed, because in those days you could actually see into Murrayfield. And, um, and then in the warehouses... Um, they looked on to Hart's football ground. All right, perfect. Oh, so when games were on, the distillery managers thinking, where the hell is it? On the way up and have a wander and watch Hart's. Um, and, um, and of course, the days, in those days, the, the game started at two o'clock because there was no floodlighting. Right. So, um, middle of the day. Yeah. Was that basically the, off. the lunch break or is it just. Um, it was after lunch. Yeah. Um, but um, you didn't abuse it. Yeah. You didn't abuse it. Yeah. So your role at North British, what were you doing there? It was um, working in the distillery, working in the warehouses, and um, rolling casks around the place. God knows how many casks I must have rolled in the the distilleries up and up north and in Leith and at the <laughs> North British. Because, of course, you're dealing with a production uh, that is eight times the size of a, of a malt distillery. So um, you're... Oh, yeah, because it's a grain distillery, North yeah, British, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, you're moving casks around um, to a fair degree. Yeah, and who are they mostly going to? They would be going... The North British Distillery was, was owned by the industry, by the independents, not mm. the DCL, but the, ind- the independents. Uh, people like um, Bells, MacDonald and Muir, um, Highland Distilleries, Robertson and Baxter. Um, and so they were filling for those companies because it was set up because... The other distillery, other grain distilleries, were owned by 
uh, DCL, Distillers Company Limited, and there was concern that um, they might cut off the supply of grain whisky. So that's how the North British Distillery was set up. All right. And do you always have a sort of special place in your heart for these distilleries? you remember them fondly? Oh, very, very, yeah. 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 It's funny that North yeah. British is one, because that is one of the first whiskies that I remember thinking, bloody hell, that's, that's incredible. You know, before that, I guess when I was first getting into it, maybe, what, five or six years ago now, and thinking when I heard people talking about notes of bubble gum and tasting sea air, I was like, what a load of shit that is. Yeah. But then I tried that A.D. Rattery North British, and it was literally like bubble gum flavour. I was like, wow, that's incredible. And that yeah. bottle went very quickly, and now I've looked, and you don't have any more, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, so coincidence there as well. Absolutely, yeah. In our next episode, we'll find out what it was like in the 60s touring the UK as a whiskey broker. We'll also hear about my granddad's first trip to the US and Canada with his father to cement relationships with the major families and businesses there, as well as his first tour of South America. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like featured in future series, please leave them in the ratings or our YouTube and social channels, which you can find in the description.